Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, recorded during the COP27 summit, I talked to former Brexit Secretary Lord David Frost. Until early 2020, Frost was known only to Whitehall and Westminster insiders. But after then, Prime Minister Boris Johnson appointed him as the UK's chief Brexit negotiator, he became a household name. In December 2021, Frost resigned from government, saying he admired Johnson, but he couldn't support what was then called Plan B, the tightening of anti-Covid restrictions. Since then, he's written a weekly Daily Telegraph column and plied his trade in the upper house, remaining a man of considerable influence. In this interview, Lord Frost cast doubt on the government's net zero 2050 target, while accusing Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of hypocrisy for cutting a deal to import huge amounts of fracked gas from the US while not allowing UK fracking. Frost also warns against raising taxes into the teeth of recession and tighter monetary policy, which he says risks throwing the UK economy into a vicious downward spiral. Lord Frost, thanks a lot for appearing on Money Talks. You've decided to join the GWPF as a trustee. Why did you make that decision? So I think one of the things we most need on the whole energy climate change issue at the moment is open debate, full and frank debate about all the issues, discussion, nothing uh, excluded. And the GWPF has been really good over the last decade or more in promoting that, in trying to give an objective view of what's going on, putting out educational material, trying to to widen the debate. And um, I'm very keen to be part of that. What would you say to those who accuse people who question uh, the economic strategy around climate change of being climate change deniers? It's pretty evocative language, isn't it? It is, and I don't think it's helpful at all to use that that sort of language. Uh, very few people, in my view, think that climate change is not happening. Very few people think there isn't some human element to it. The question is, what do we do about it? And in my view, we're not in a climate emergency or a climate crisis in the very hysterical way that, that some people like to suggest. We do have a problem. And the way to adapt to that problem is through adaptation and through being serious about the kind of energy supplies that we are we're trying to develop. And we can go at that soberly, seriously, properly without getting stuck uh, on a path that uh, is not going to deliver what we want. And that's my worry at the moment, that we're rushing at it. We're trying to do too much too quickly. The technologies aren't available and we're running into problems, as we're finding out this year. To what extent do you think the combination of the war in Ukraine, the impact on international energy prices and the cost of living squeeze, they're related, of course, but separate. To what extent do you think they're changing the debate around not so much climate change itself, but our reaction to climate change? Yeah, they are beginning to because they're they're forcing some realism in the the subject that we are um, facing the prospect of you know at least uh, severe strain on our energy supplies this this winter uh, they're getting extremely expensive people are focusing on what really matters which is not only how much carbon does the energy supply emit but 
does the, do the lights come on when I when I turn the switch? Do I have security of supply? Can I afford it? And those are crucial things. So I think the war, um, the cost of living crisis, are they've they brought it into people's mind. Of course, they're not the fundamental cause of some of the problems that we face. Those that goes a bit deeper. What did you think as you watched COP twenty six in Glasgow last year? And do you think the UK's response has changed? Now we've had COP27 in Egypt. Well, it, it, it's hard to tell. I think it's always difficult when you're hosting something yourself. You always want to make it a, a success. Uh, we've now handed over the, the presidency to the Egyptians in COP27. And I hope that, you know, a lot has changed in that, that intervening year. I think we need to move away from the... Um, how to put this, the kind of assumption that there's only one way of dealing with this problem, squeezing out all other debates, squeezing out people who want to, to widen the frame of debate um, and having a more rational discussion about what we're trying to do. And I think we are beginning to see that now. I think things are changing, but it is very, very slow. And it worries me that um, certain opinions are still difficult to express. It, it worried me during the, the pandemic that certain issues got squeezed out of the debate, some of which turned out to be perfectly reasonable. And we mustn't do the same with, with climate. Free speech, uh, free debate, exchange of ideas is always the best way of getting the best solutions. What do you think the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson meant when he described your views on wind farms as, quote, medieval? <laughs> So I, I, I said wind farms are a medieval technology and windmills are a medieval technology. They, they were developed in the early Middle Ages and they were largely replaced when we found something better. First of all, coal, and that's why we had the Industrial Revolution in this country, and then gas and then nuclear. And I, I think it's a, um, a misconception to think that we can suddenly replace uh, all those very effective forms of energy with uh, with renewables and and wind. So, you know, I'm not quite sure what Boris meant meant by that. Uh, he, of course, has himself been a bit more sceptical about um, some of these issues in the past, and maybe he will yet be again. Yeah, let's talk. You know him him well. Um, you were by his side during some of the most fraught negotiations in this country's modern history. You were the greatest frost since the Great Frost. Yeah. When was it? 18... 1709. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly he has enormous respect for you. How do you think his views on climate change has, has shifted? Some people think when he talks about climate catastrophe, when he talks about urgency, he doesn't actually believe what he's saying. Well, I... I, I I think he does. I, you know, I, 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 he's a remarkable guy. I have a lot of respect for him. I think he, you know, he is a convinced uh, proponent of of net zero, um, and he's obviously changed his mind on that subject. He does usually get to the right solutions in the end. Maybe he just hasn't got there yet. I think would be my view. And as he looks at the reality of um, the energy market in this country and across the West and what renewables can actually do, uh, I like to think and hope he may yet come to a different view on this. Do you think net zero within the time frame that we're proposing is realistic? I'm doubtful, uh, I've got to say. 
I don't think that um, rushing at the 2050 deadline as we have it in the UK and Europe is necessarily going to work. I don't think the technologies are quite ripe yet. Um, it's too easy to say all we need to do is have more uh, wind film farms and more solar until we get uh, the ability to store power, until the intermittency problem is solved, really properly solved. I, find, I struggle to see that these technologies are going to do everything we want and that they'll be useful in more than a marginal way. I think the right way of going at this is gas to nuclear and lots and lots of research into to other possibilities. And uh, you know, I don't know whether that is consistent with 2050. I'm doubtful. Do you think this ban on new petrol and diesel cars coming in in 2030, it's fast down the track, do you think that will actually happen, David? It's a good question. I am doubtful, to be honest, that uh, the market is quite ripe, that uh, the grid is ready for the increase in power. I think we might see some perverse effects in the market in the run-up as people try and get petrol, diesel cars before it happens. I think the general problem with this, though, is, is that government is... Um, trying to pick winners is trying to choose the way forward you know ban petrol cars force heat pump boilers i don't think that's the electric the, vehicles yeah exactly I, I i don't think it's the right way isn't there a danger that electric vehicles are a blind alley we're really dependent on lithium on copper there's five times more copper in an, an ev than a conventional car yeah we're, we're making ourselves dependent again on you know foreign powers that have got this stuff we haven't got it yeah, I think the problem that we've got is that government is trying to pick winners and choose technologies and all of you know, modern history shows that tends not to end very well because governments tend not to be very good at doing that. Best way is to let the market work, you know, put in a carbon tax, put in you know, the emissions trading scheme or whatever, but let the market sort out what the most efficient and most effective mm. way is. Maybe it won't be electric cars, maybe it'll be something else. Hydrogen? Hydrogen could be. I mean, it has some promise. I think from people who who are looking at this but um, who knows the best way is to let the churn of the market innovation work and deliver the results let me just ask you something specifically on the hydrogen David you know, many leading industrialists that I know um, people at JCB mm. people like you know Andrew Forrest who runs Forza Skew Mining one of the most successful Australian business leaders of all time they think hydrogen technology is a lot better than electric vehicle technology because you do the electrolysis, that can come from renewables, come from anywhere, and then you can store it as hydrogen. Where do you think the government is on this hydrogen strategy? So, I mean, they're obviously very interested in it, and a lot of research is, is going into it at the moment, and I think rightly so. And But, of course, how you generate the hydrogen, uh, how you create it, also matters quite mm. a lot. But, I, you know, even though, even if hydrogen at the moment looks slightly more promising, I don't know, even if it does, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen in some other field of technology in the next decade or so. So we must remain open to advances and not get locked in to something that may turn out not to be the best way forward. What do you make of the fact that in the middle of COP26, we're announcing that we're going to become a lot more dependent on American liquefied natural gas crossing the Atlantic. It's extremely expensive. In the aftermath, 
of a confirmation of the fracking ban. It seems that we've got our thinking a bit muddled, no? Yeah. I mean, obviously, if we are dependent on somebody, I'd rather it was the Americans than the Russians or plenty of other players around the world. But but even so, it's best to do your own uh, energy if you possibly can, and you can do it cost-effectively. And, you know, we still can do North Sea gas and oil. We've discouraged investment, and now we need to change that fast. I'm personally in favour of at least trying fracking and seeing if we can if we can do that. And I think there's a degree of hypocrisy in those who say who won't do fracking in the UK, but are perfectly happy to import large quantities of fracked gas from the US or Qatar or, or you know, wherever else. I think it's um, it is just uh, a bit um, kind of unreasonable to look at it in that way. We should be responsible for our own security of supply as far as we possibly can. And it's not like we're making a deal with the US government. We are basically entering the marketplace to become more reliant on hard-nosed US private sector gas exporters, right? Yeah, absolutely. They're not going to do absolutely. us any favours, are they? No, I mean, the market is the market. You know, you, you, we have discovered that um, if you want a reliable supply of, uh, of gas, and we've discovered this over the last few months, you may have to pay quite a lot of money for it because that's the way the market is. And that will be true wherever you get it from. Let's look ahead to November the 17th, if, if we may. What do you make of the general strategy here? We're on the brink of recession, if not in recession. The tax burden in this country is already at a 70 year high and we're about to increase it even more. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we know, to be fair, we don't quite know yet what the strategy is. We've got to wait for 17th of November. Obviously, the Liz Trust government was, you know, had a very, very um, uh, free market supply side, you know, low tax if we could get it model. And then we seem to have swung right over. Uh, under Jeremy Hunt to uh, George Osborne style austerity, increasing taxes, cutting spending, whatever. What we need to do is get somewhere, for now at least, in the middle of those two things, restore confidence, but crucially set a direction. Uh, you know, we must still retain the aspiration to increase the productive capacity of this country to make everybody wealthier, more productive, more successful in their work and their, their daily lives. And if we give up on that aspiration, then we're, we're heading for decline. So I hope the government will keep saying it. There clearly are going to be tax rises under a range of headings. What are the dangers of raising taxes now, David, when the economy is clearly slowing and we're already have the highest tax burden since Clement Attlee. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a real risk of raising taxes into a recession, especially when interest rates and monetary policy is getting tighter uh, as well. Um, it, there are very few examples, if any, in the world of countries that have consolidated their way into to growing. What tends to happen more is budgetary consolidation begins to slow growth, crush the economy. You therefore have to consolidate even further and you get on to a, a vicious cycle. And some of the Eurozone countries have got into that at times. Do you think in, we're in a danger in of, the, the past. of a vicious downward spiral? I mean, I, we, I, I don't know yet. I think you just got to be cautious when it's clear that you know economic conditions are are getting worse that we're not, we're not making our own life more difficult but you know the prime minister and the chancellor are well aware of this and I, I guess we've got to wait and see what they actually do do you think we're through these political squalls now four chancellors in as many months didn't look good did it it didn't look good i think that um i hope we are 
I, I think everybody's a bit exhausted by it all and needs a bit of stability. Um, to get the stability, the Prime Minister, the government, is going to have to develop a programme that has something for everybody. That's economically, also politically, issues like immigration and so on. We've got to have something that everybody can get behind. And if he can do that, and I think there's a good chance he can, if he can do that, then we will have some, some stability and we can move forward, uh, you know, in a better way. I think that what we're seeing is... You know, the British political system is still adjusting to to, to Brexit. You know, the, there has been a change in our economic model in all kinds of ways. The economy has, has, you know, has changed and is in the process of change. And we're seeing the political system reflect that. And, you know, we do have a politics where people debate things strongly, argue it out. And it's quite brutal at times. And that's what we've seen. But we tend to get to the right results doing that. And I hope that's what we will do. What's your advice to Rishi Sunak? I think think, um, try and develop a programme that uh, everybody can get behind. Don't pivot to austerity. Keep focus on increasing production, increasing supply side reform. Um, Try and bring everybody with you so that people feel the government is stable and can get behind it. And what's your message, Lord Frost, to Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss? <laughs> they should have stuck to their guns. Uh, I, I, the great disappointment to me was not that they made mistakes. They certainly did make mistakes, but people do make mistakes in government. Um, it was that they got pushed off what they were trying to do too quickly, I think, and didn't push forward, didn't adjust, didn't prepare, didn't try and keep the focus on growth, productivity, making the economy stronger. So it's a great pity, but but there it is. Ten-year guilt yields are currently back where they were before the mini-budget, even though big chunks of the mini-budget have actually been implemented, not least the national insurance cut. Mm. Do you think it really was the mini-budget that freaked out government debt markets? I mean, it feels like it was the... The sort of immediate cause, but I don't. I'm not sure it was the underlying reason. I think it, it, it provoked people to take a look at the British economy in a different way. Obviously, um, I think the very, very generous energy bailout uh, was probably a, a bigger reason. Probably, you know, a, a certain like cavalierness about the fiscal planning probably mm. on the day didn't didn't really help. But I think that was the the underlying problem. People took suddenly looked and thought, mm, "I'm not sure." And that's that's and the government was not able to say enough. It had not prepared the ground. It had not explained, and people took fright. And I, I think that could have been recovered. It was being recovered, and it's a pity that uh, we didn't carry on doing that. You are a widely respected figure. You're particularly widely respected, if I may say so, across the grassroots of the Conservative Party. Do you see yourself having a role in this Sunak government if it's going to last at least until the next general election? So I didn't look for a role. I, I, I think um, the Prime Minister has enough uh, difficulties in, in balancing the party and reflecting all currents of opinion without worrying about me. Um, if I am 
able to support and help of course i'm 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 happy to uh, meanwhile i'm able to just try and get my views out try and explain try and say what i think needs to be done and i think i find a lot of people agree with me on this and i'll carry on saying it lord david frost thanks a lot for appearing on money talks thanks a lot it's a pleasure thanks a lot for listening to money talks with me liam halligan economics and business editor of gb news if you've enjoyed this episode then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast. GB News, Britain's news channel.